Exodus chapter 15. Uh, we've been walking our way through the book of Exodus. Like I said, this is the story of how God is producing a people who are his people. This is like what it looks like for God to produce the people of God. Okay, so uh, the first half of the book, roughly, is God bringing his people out of bondage. The second half of the book, so 20 chapters, it's 40 chapters in the book. The first half is bringing them out. And then the second 20 chapters is what it looks like for them to live in this newfound freedom. So we're kind of working our way towards um, this freedom that they're going to be living in for basically uh, the rest of their time as the people of God. And we ended last week on this really emotional high. So we're going to read about it. They just crossed the Red Sea. Uh, the waters came back in, uh, killed the Egyptian army, and they began to sing out of joyful hearts to the Lord. And we read that whole song last week, but we're going to finish up um, the chapter this week. So let's start uh, Exodus chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 19, uh, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. Exodus 15. Verse 19, page 33, if you got one of our Bibles, here we go. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and he, there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will, pursue, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water." So we finished up last week with what we just read. Uh, Miriam going out singing after the waters just came on the Egyptians. They're free now, right? They're free in a way that they've never been free before. They're looking back and they're like, we have been un in bondage, in slavery, pursued by the Egyptians. We've had real live enemies after us for the entirety of our existence. And now they're gone. I mean, this is like an unbelievable freedom. This is an incredible moment for them. And I don't know if you ever had anything like awesome happen to you while you were in a group, but when those types of incredible things happen, like there's like a buzz and an energy that you can't stop talking about, right? And you're like, where were you when it happened? I was in the back. And like, we could hear the Egyptians coming. I could hear them yelling, oh, my wheel fell off, right? And like, where were you? I was in the front. Like, and I was like, we're really going to walk into this? And I was like, three guys behind this big guy. And he tripped. And I helped him up in the water. Like, it, those are the types of stories that they would be. Can you Like, that was unbelievable. And we were walking through. And we saw the water on the side. And there was like fish. And I don't even know what the stories are. But I do know from being in those types of instances the energy would have been crazy. And so they walk through this water. The Egyptians try to follow them. They get stuck in the soft seabed. The water comes over them. 
And remember, they walked through all night. We're talking about 2.5 million people here. So this is not like a 20-minute deal. Like this is, this is a long process. Like this takes a while. This is significant. They get to the other side, and it says in the morning, the sun comes up, and they see bodies of the dead Egyptians washing up on the sand of the beaches on the other side. And there's a lot going on mentally at this moment, right? They're really excited, really just overjoyed, relieved, all the things that you would feel from this emotional high. But then there's this sobriety, this like solemnness as you see the consequences of the, the life the Egyptians have been living and the death that has taken place. And like this cost people their lives. This was not just like all fun and games. Like this was a real thing. And as this kind of like mixture of overwhelming joy and like severe consequences is like working in the hearts. Miriam walks out and begins to sing this song and the people start joining in and singing with her. And pretty soon everybody's singing it. Moses is like, this is amazing. We need to write this down. We need to keep singing this song. We need to continue to remind ourselves of how good God is, what he's done for us. And we covered that entire song last week in the first part of Exodus 15. And the content of the song was powerful, right? But I also want to point out, this is a significant moment in the formation of the people of God. And we've said it a whole bunch, and I've said it even today already. This is the story of how the people of God become the people of God. And when it started, the people were in slavery, and now they are free, but they weren't just free to do whatever they felt like do, doing. They were free for something that God had called them to do. They weren't in slavery anymore, but now they were free to build a life that was in pursuit of Yahweh, that was in pursuit of the God who had set them free. And Exodus 15 is really significant because up to this point, everything that they had done in like building this new life, everything that they had started, these new habits, these new patterns, these new rhythms of life, these, these obedient structures, the things they had built in their life to remember and honor God, all of that had been commanded by God. If, if you've been with us, you've seen that. God said very early, he said, I want you to start a new, a new calendar system. Okay, got it. We're doing it, right? I want this month to be the first month of the year. Okay, got it. And on this first month, I want you to go get a baby lamb, one year old. Okay, got it. And I want you to keep that lamb for two weeks, and then I want you to slaughter it and eat it for dinner. Got it. Then I want you to eat these types of things and unleavened bread, and you got to get the leaven out of your houses, and then you got to remember the Lord's Passover, and you take the blood, and you smear it on the door. All these things were commanded by God. Very much obedience-driven. Now we get to this, and I'm going to say this, don't be mad, I'm going to explain it, but they just made this up. This song, this was not commanded by God, this was made up. They just made it up. And, and I intentionally use that word that's kind of like irreverent, like, and it, you know, if you're a type one on the Enneagram, you're like, no, who told you you could just make stuff up? You can't just go around making stuff up. That's what they did. Miriam was moved by God, and she's like, I'm going to sing, and I'm going to do this. Like, there was no command of God. God didn't say, okay, when you get to the other side, I want you guys to sing. And these are the words to sing. That's not what happened. They just made up this song on the spot. Now, she definitely was led by God. She was definitely led by the Spirit of God. Other people listened to it. It's like, yeah, that's in line with what we know of Yahweh, of the God who set us free. But there wasn't a command to get us there. And that's significant, okay? 
If you never make anything up in your response and worship to God, that's a problem. Okay? It's, I'm not saying like, you're going to hell, you're in sin. But that's like a check engine light on your car. You, you should probably get to the bottom of that. You should figure out what's happening there. Okay? If nothing voluntary comes out of your heart in response to God in worship, then, then what, why is that? Why is that happening? If you don't ever make anything up, if you don't ever, we're all unique. We all should worship in some unique ways. Now, there's some things that we all follow the rules on, right? You can't be like, I worship God by stealing. Like, no, you don't, okay? <laughs> like, there's some things that are, are the same for all of us, but there's a lot of things that won't be the same for all of us. And there will be unique ways that you connect with and relate to and remind yourself of the goodness of God and respond to his grace in your life in a way that wasn't commanded, but it's just completely voluntary. This is already happening in our church, okay? So if you don't know this, I'm sure you do as I go through it. You'll be like, oh, yeah, that's what that is, right? Some of you are sitting there like, I can't sing. You want me to write a song? No, I don't want you to write a song, okay? Like, we're good. I've seen enough of the early seasons of American Idol. We don't need everybody thinking they could sing here. But that doesn't mean that everybody has to make up something that is artsy and creative and stuff like that. I know people in this church that when they tell me about what they do with their kids during Christmas time and Advent season, I'm like, um, that's amazing. Right? And they have this ritual every year that comes around December. They got a calendar and they're like, we read these stories and we talk about, like, that's awesome. Nowhere in your Bible is it commanded, this is what you need to do around Christmas time to remember the birth of the Savior. It's not in there. They just were like, well, how can we invest in our kids? How can we grow? How can we make this season special? How can we invest like time and energy into our kids understanding the big deal that it was that God became a man and they came up with this incredible plan that they do every year. That's exactly the type of thing that I'm talking about. I know other people that just play worship with their family. At, at night, they're just like, we're playing worship and we're singing. They got little babies and like, we're just going to sing to God and our little baby's going to hear us singing to God. That's awesome. Again, not commanded in the scripture. I've heard of families that read a psalm every morning. They just get their family together, read a psalm or a proverb. I know families that do a date night every single week. Why? Well, we invest in a lot of things every single week. And if marriage is a picture of the covenant-keeping nature of God and the relationship with Jesus Christ and his church is tied back to the idea of marriage, maybe we should spend once a week investing in that too. We invest in lots of stuff every single week, like work and recreation and fitness and kids' sports and name a billion other things. Why wouldn't we invest in our marriage once a week, right? All of those things are just made up. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. I'm glad that it's that way. I'm glad that they're made up. It's just the spirit of God working uniquely through a person to respond to God's goodness in a certain way that maybe they aren't commanded to do, but they are like, how can I do more of what God is calling me to do? Let, let me just make something up here. Like, that's awesome. That should be happening. Now, some of you are on the other end of the spectrum, right? What, some of you, when I said, like, you should make something up, you're like, are we allowed to make stuff up? Yes, you are. And some of you are on the other side. You're like, I got you, Jared. I make everything up, right? Like, <laughs> I haven't made a plan and followed through in a decade, right? My whole life's made up. That's also not what I'm talking about, okay? Okay. 
I'm not saying like don't plan anything ever, okay? You, what I am talking about is taking principles of God's kingdom, like the importance of the word of God and loving your neighbor as yourself and prayer and self-sacrifice and generosity and figuring out ways to build those principles and values into your life in a unique way. That should be happening. And that's what we see happening in the formation of the people of God, right? Miriam's like, this was amazing. I got the gift of singing. I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing of how good my God is and what he's done for us. And people hear that and they respond to it. And Moses hears that singing and he's like, let's write this down. Let's keep singing this. And they did. For thousands and thousands of years, they would sing this song and remind themselves of the goodness of God. And yet it was never commanded by God, when you get to the other side, you guys better sing. I want to hear all your voices. It's not how it happened. It was just spontaneous from what God was doing in their hearts. So we're seeing the people of God not only worshiping through obedience, but also worshiping of their own free will in ways that are even beyond obedience. So the people are singing the song. They probably got it stuck in their heads. They're humming. They're singing as they go. Everybody's pretty excited about what just happened. And we pick it up at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. There's a little footnote in your Bible there that says Marah is the Hebrew word for bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, Everybody's having a good time, right? Until they go three days without water. I bet it snuck up on most of them too. They're singing, walking, loving life. We're free. This is great. We're happy. Then someone asks, hey, pass me the water. I'm thirsty. And, you know, the person was like, I'm empty. It's like, you're empty. Well, who's got water? And the next person was like, I'm empty too. It's like, do we have any water left? And like, someone like, I got a little bit left. Wait, who's? And then you start to realize, like, we haven't had water in three days. Like, where are we going to get water? And then you start to go, wait, whose idea was this to walk out in the wilderness? Like, whose plan? Moses, do you know what? Do you know where water is? Is that what you're leading us to? And Moses is like, ah, just big cloud, big pillar of cloud. I'm following that, right? No idea. And now you start to grumble a little bit. Like, okay, guys, this was cool that the Red Sea thing happened, but we don't got any water. Is anyone paying attention that we don't got any water? Whose idea was this to go out this direction? Did we not plan this out? Can we send somebody out to find water? Send some scouts. You go that way. You two go that way. You two. Somebody find us water. We're going to die without water. And this is interesting because they are more free and yet less comfortable. More free and less comfortable. They're free from their bondage and their oppression. They're free to build lives that are honoring to Yahweh, but this is a much less comfortable place because they're thirsty and they're uncertain. They don't feel like they're in control and they're not sure how they're going to make it through this. Everybody loves to feel out of control, right? Nobody does. And this happened quick, right? Three days ago, they were singing and grateful and loving life. And now they're following the same leader, submitting to the same God under mostly the same circumstances. And they're now critical, complaining, and discouraged like that. You know you don't have the option to stay the same, right? 
it, that would have been, there's some people that think along those lines. They're like, why don't we just stay here next to the Red Sea? Well, there's no water here either. Why don't we just, we're good now. The Egyptians are gone. Why do we have to keep moving? Because you can't just stay where you are. You have to keep moving. Humans don't get the option or the luxury of just leaving things the same. Life doesn't work that way. Like If you're a runner and you're like, I'm in really good shape, and then you stop running, will you stay the same? No. You'll be formed into whatever you're acting. So if you just sit on the couch, that will start to form you. If you continue to run, that will start to form you. But staying the exact same will not happen on its own. Just like a plant. If you have a plant that's alive and you're like, oh, it's good and green now. I'll just leave it by itself for a while. It'll die unless you continue. The work actually has to be put into something to maintain because you'll go downhill, right? No, nothing tends towards life or order. Like if you leave your house, will it get cleaner on accident, ladies? Like all the moms are giggling, right? I'm not even going to justify that with an answer, Jared. I got it, right? It doesn't tend towards order or like all of these things in life. The older you get, you don't get more flexible, right? All of these things you're going to have to put in effort if you just want to maintain. And that's the same thing with walking with God. You have to put in work just to stay the same. That's how the world works. Staying the same without effort, while a nice idea, is not really an option. It doesn't work like that. So spiritually speaking, they were on this complete high because they had trusted God through a really hard moment. But if the people then didn't have to trust God anymore, if they stopped trusting God altogether, then they would be formed in that direction. They would become formed as people who don't trust God any longer. And so they would be formed in a non-trusting God people. And people do this a lot. They treat Christianity like a driver's license test. Like, oh yeah, I did that thing. I knew how far before a turn I had to use my blinker once upon a time. Like, I knew how far to follow a, and, and we take our driver's license test and we forget all the information. We just don't get in a wreck, right? People think that of Christianity. They're like, oh yeah, I walked by faith one time. I surrendered to God one time. Yeah, I did that when I was young. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I had this girl who wanted to go on a missions trip. And uh, she told me at youth group, she said, I don't have enough money. And so um, I said, all right, let me make some calls. So I called some people that wanted to invest in the kids of our church. I said, hey, got this girl. She's great. She loves Jesus. She's interested in going to Bible college. She wants to go on this missions trip. She doesn't have any money. And these people were great. They're generous. They're like, say no more. How much does she need? I'll write a check today. I'll drop it off. And so I got it all lined up. And then I told the girl, I said, hey, we got paid for it. And her dad called me. Furious. Furious. I can't believe you're telling my daughter to go on this missions trip. She needs to work. She's, I, okay, oh, I'm sorry. I definitely should ask you. Lesson learned, right? Don't step on the parents' toes. But he's like, I used to be all into church. I used to be in this band. We played all over. We sang to Jesus. And you know what? It didn't make any money. And I had to grow up and realize I had to pay the bills if I was ever going to make something of myself. And he still based his Christianity on this faith that he stopped walking in decades ago. And now his daughter was bearing the consequences of that. 
He wasn't a father that was like, yeah, you do what God is calling you to do. You be obedient. We'll figure out the money. You just pursue God with all you have. He's like, no, you take care of yourself. And if we can fit God into that, we will. But if we can't, then we'll do the things that make sense to us. And it formed him. And lots of people do that. That's why baptism, Hannah was just talking about it. Sometimes baptism reminds us, oh, yeah, that surrendering moment, that time when I stepped into a new life, the time that when honoring God was all that mattered to me in the whole world, what happened to that? Is that still alive in me or is it gone? Right? That's why it's so good to have people in the congregation not all singing and, and praying, but watching people step into that life of surrender because it reminds us of that day we took that moment of surrender. And if you're like, I never took that moment of surrender, good news, we're doing baptisms in two weeks. You can do it. And so they walk into this uncomfortable circumstance, and Yahweh knows they will be formed either towards trusting in him through the bitterness or away from trusting in him. And look at verse 25. And Moses now cries to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And, he, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord our God and do what, you, what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So God shows Moses a tree. The literal word there that is written in your Bible as log, the literal word is tree, okay? So the translators were like, I don't picture Moses like picking up a tree and just like Paul Bunyan like throwing that sucker in the lake. They probably cut like a portion of the tree, like a log. Um, but the literal word is tree, which is interesting because as Moses throws the portion of the tree, or maybe it was a small tree and he threw the whole thing, or maybe he got a bunch of dudes and threw a whole big old tree in there, I don't know. But God does a miracle as they walk by faith and trust him. And the water goes from bitterness. And we don't know if that like made them sick or just tasted real bad and they didn't want to drink it. But now it's drinkable. This is the miracle that God does. And there's a lot of interesting parallels that we could talk about here, such as fresh water being the most essential thing to sustaining life on the planet. And the tree thrown in the water now gives life-sustaining power to this water. Right? Because later on in your Bible, it's going to say Jesus was hung on a tree and resurrected. So it's interesting that this tree is introduced in the story, and it makes life possible. Interesting parallel there. There's another parallel of the idea that water, apart from the miracle of God, doesn't satisfy. Somebody say amen. There's a lot of people out there drinking water that's not satisfying. They're like, I'll keep drinking from this, and it's not satisfying me. Yeah, because you need the power of God to make it sustain life. I want to talk about this weird answer that God gave, though. Okay? They come to the water. It's probably super discouraging, right? They probably sent scouts out. This is my guess. Scouts are like, we see water just over the next hill. Okay, awesome. Let's go. Everybody, we're going this way. We found water. They're like, praise God. Thank you. The scouts get down to the water. Uh, bad news. We can't drink it. Like, you go tell them. No, you go tell them, right? They're probably like, rock, paper, scissors for us to go tell Moses that this isn't drinkable water, right? Everybody's coming. They come back, Moses, bad news. There's a lot of water, but it's not drinkable. Ah, oh. right? So you get your hopes up. And you like, God, why would you do that to me? I thought things were going great. I thought we fig figured this out. We fixed the problem. Not what happens. And God gives this weird answer to their prayer. 
They don't have water. They pray. God gives them water, shows Moses the tree. They throw it in. They now have water. They're good. And after this, after God does a miracle, says, if you listen to me, you won't be like the Egyptians. I am Yahweh, your healer. What? Did I miss something? When did the Bible, were the Egyptians sick and we didn't know about it? Like, did we talk about that on the way through? I don't remember reading anything about the Egyptians being really sick people or like they had all these diseases. Like, there's none of that in the Bible. Wait, did I miss it? Well, what are we talking about here? The, the, only time, the only time we see anything about the health of the Egyptians is when the fifth plague came and they had boils on them. And that was it. But we have no record of the Egyptians, biblically anyway, being like sicker than everybody else. So you're like, wait, what's going on here? But here's where I want to start and figure out what the heck God means. He introduces in this passage a new name for himself. He says, the Lord, your healer. Okay, we've talked about this a whole bunch of times, but that Lord capitalized in your Bible is the name of God. Our best guess is Yahweh, so I'm going to go with that. And then he takes the word healer, which in Hebrew is Rapha, and he just takes Yahweh and Rapha and like shoves them together. He's like, Yahweh Rapha, the Lord your healer, Yahweh healer. He makes a new name for himself. He calls himself now Yahweh healer, your healer. Let's do it like this. God told Moses at the very beginning of the book how he was going to save or to rescue his people. When I talk about rescue or saving, think about the word rescue. If you are in a situation where you need rescue, where's the problem? Is it outside you or inside you? If I said, I need to be rescued, would that be a threat that is external or internal? External, right? It's not a trick question. You're like, I don't want to say anything. He's going to point at me. I'm like, Steve, you got it wrong. 30 push-ups. No, we don't do that, okay? It's external, right? If I need rescue, it's from something external. There's a flood. I need something. There's a fire. I need a fireman. There's a tornado. I don't know what it is, right? I'm kidnapped and Liam Neeson, please come help me, right? I need rescue. Something external to me is happening and I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. That's how they've known God up to this point, as their savior, as their rescuer. When I say the word healer, if you need healing, is that external or internal? Internal. Oh. Now God is going to step into a place in their lives where he's not just going to save them from things outside of their control or external. He's saying, ah, there's things inside of you that we need to deal with, Israelites. If you're going to be my people, then I'm trying to say this as gently as I can, but I'm going to have to be the Lord, your healer. You're going to have to know me as your healer. Now, now that's a huge difference because you can get rescued by somebody you don't know at all. Right? The fireman shows up, your cat's in a tree, he climbs a ladder, you don't even know his name. He's like, oh, we got saved, we got rescued, this is all great. But if you need healing, you go to a doctor. 
He makes you fill out forms. No, I'm just joking, right? He asks you your name. He asks what's going on. How long has this been happening? Tell me about your life. Do you do this? Do you do this? Have you had this forever? What's your family like? There's built-in relationship to the idea of healing. There's an intimacy and a closeness of healing that is much different than just rescuing or saving. So when God now calls himself Yahweh Healer, Like, he's moving to a closeness with these people and pointing to something inside of them that is much different than he's been dealing with thus far in the book. And it's interesting because he points this back to the Egyptians. We don't have any record other than the boils of the Egyptians have something wrong with them physically, but we do have 17 references to the hardness of their heart. That seems pretty internal to me, right? 17 references he talks about Pharaoh having a hard heart, the leader of the Egyptians, or the people changing their minds and having a hard heart. So my guess is they don't walk, they walk three days without any water. They don't know where they're going. They start to grumble. They're really uncomfortable. They're discouraging circumstances. Bitterness is a place of bitterness. And then God calls it a test. You see that? He said, this was a test. Now, some of you are like, most of us in our culture actually probably have really negative views of testing, especially when it's one person testing another person, right? It's like, let me see how good you are at this. Because that type of test is usually designed for somebody to fail. Like, let's see if you measure up, right? I just picture somebody giving that negative version of a test with their arms crossed, their nose in the air a little bit. Like, let's see how good you do here. That's actually a very narrow sliver of the idea of a test. There's all sorts of different tests, right? There's uh, tests in proficiency, right? Like when my son did his black belt test for Taekwondo, the instructor wouldn't let him take the test until he already knew he would pass, right? So he was training, he was practicing, the teacher was watching him, and he's like, okay, now you're ready for the test, because he knew he would pass it. So the test wasn't like a, let's see if you're any good. The test was the celebration of the skills and habits he had learned over five years. It was like this really awesome moment where we all just got to clap and be excited and be like, you passed the test to show you and everybody around you what you've learned, Right? So it wasn't a negative thing at all. It wasn't like this pressure-filled thing. It was just a celebration of joy. There's other types of tests, uh, like a medical test. Is like, it's not motivated by anger or bitterness or like, let's see if you could do this. It's like, hey, let's find out what's wrong. Right? A doctor will order a test, be like, let's figure this out. I want you to walk in healing. I want you to be better. I want to solve the problem. Let's order a test. Let's see what's wrong. And then we can make a plan on how to get better at this. Right? So not all testing is negative, especially when we think of testing by God. We think of these, like God's mad at us. And he's like, I'm going to test them. What if he's like a doctor and he's like, hey guys, you're going to walk three days in the wilderness and you're going to be angry and complaining and discouraged and bitter. I'm just going to let you know that test is going to reveal there's something internal that we're going to have to deal with if you're going to know me like I desire for you to know me. You're going to have to know me as healer if you're going to know me in the way that you should know me. We talked about this idea of walking by experience with God, just not information. And when God says, Yahweh healer, 
Like some of you have heard that Jehovah Rapha, okay? That's the same idea, just different ideas on pronunciation, tomato, tomato, we're all good. I'm not saying something completely different. But Yahweh healer, Jehovah Rapha, right? The Lord Rapha, your healer. Like you're going to have to know God as your healer. You're going to have to know God as the God who deals with the things inside of you if you're going to know him in the way that saves your soul and gives you joy and peace. Now, this has the potential to be very offensive to the Israelites, doesn't it? Because for hundreds of years, they, they've lived for a very long time convinced that the thing wrong with their lives was slavery. The thing wrong with their lives, what's broken about our situation is the Egyptians, God. It's external. We need saving. We need rescuing. And God in this moment says, you need healing. Like, I need healing. They need healing. Do you see what they're doing to us? Do you know what they've done to me? Do you know what they've done to our people? Like, this has the potential to be very offensive. If you come to someone who thinks with all their heart they have been wronged, and you say, actually, there's something inside of you that needs to be dealt with, they can get very mad very quickly. But God has his people's best interests at heart. You need to know that. And so he saves them from the external circumstances. So they trust him. They learn to walk with him by faith. They learn that he wants the best for them. They learn that he's going to set them free. They learn that he's going to deal with the external circumstances when he needs to deal with the external circumstances. But right now, he says to his people, you're going to need to know me as healer. There's a withness implied here. I didn't say witness, like the Lord being with his people when he says, I'm your healer. Like a with you idea that God steps into a relationship that has to take place if Yahweh is going to know and heal what's going on inside of me, right? You can't keep him at arm's length. You can't be a hypocrite. You can't say one thing and do another. You're going to have to let him inside at some point. And lots of Christians, self-proclaimed Christians, get stuck here. And, and I tie it back to this idea of Miriam just singing out of, the, out of the way God moved her heart. If you're just a rule follower, if we're just dealing with God externally, if we're just keeping, keeping him at arm's length, and be like, you can be my savior, you can be my rescuer, you can be my redeemer, you can purchase me back, you can pay for me with the blood of your son, that's great. And he's like, I want to heal you. And you're like, no, keep out. I think that's where a lot of American Christians live. And now, you stay out there, I'll deal with what in here when I want to deal with what's in here, which is never right? And so we're just going to keep them away. And it's like, so we build our churches to facilitate those types of Christians. We get really big churches. You just sit in the back. You don't have to talk to anybody about what's really going on. You can get in your car, get out of the parking lot. We didn't actually have to have a relationship. We didn't have to live in community. We didn't have to have friction life on life. Nobody has to know what's really going on inside of me because I could just pretend for an hour on Sunday that everything's fine. And some of you have grown up in that culture. You've seen that happen. And I'm just telling you, it's really hard for the Lord to be your healer if that's your version of how to build a new life in response to Christ. I heard an incredible phrase to describe this process this week. 
this guy was on a podcast and he was talking about the idea that it's contested space. And, and just to bring it back to what we're talking about here, there's external contested space and there's internal contested space. Now, forgive me, because I might be an idolater, and if that's true, God convict my heart, but I've been watching a lot of basketball recently, especially during March Madness, okay? And you'll hear the word contested about 50 times every time you watch a basketball game, right? Because there's two, two main times they talk about. They contest for a rebound, which is where they box each other out, right? There's a space there, and they're like, this is my rebound. And they're pushing each other around. And I would have some of our basketball coaches come up so I could push them around on stage so you get the idea. But I'm not going to do it, right? You just get this idea of these two guys. The, the shot has been missed. The ball's up in the air. It's free for anyone who wants to get it. And they're, like, pushing on each other, like, to get it. Or the idea of a contested shot. And a contested shot is just, I'm about to shoot, and somebody who's guarding me is just trying to make it harder in any way possible within the rules. I'm going to cover your eyes. I'm going to put my foot under you so you're worried about rolling your ankle. I'm going to get real close to you. I'm going to breathe on you. I'm going to foul you and hope the refs don't call it. Right? It's just the idea is making it harder. Everything is made harder. And I think sometimes we get a little too aggressive in our description of how we live this Christian life. We talk about war, we talk about fighting, we talk about battle, we're like, yeah, right? We get, some people really like fighting, right? And they're like, it's a war, it's a battle, like this is spiritual warfare. And then you walk out on a Sunday and it doesn't feel like a war. It just feels like somebody's pushing on me. It just feels like every time I try to do the right thing, I'm just getting a, a butt shoved in my face. He's just trying to move me three inches to the left, or he's just trying to cover my eyes. He's just trying to contest everything. There's something inside of me that's like making everything harder. There's something external to me that's like making it. I'm just, you need to know that about yourself and the life you're living. We're living in contested space. And sometimes you need to push back and be like, I'm going to sing even if I have to make up a dang song right now, right? I'm going to go to church even though I don't feel good. I'm going to make it to small group and invest in community, even though it's not really convenient right now. Like, sometimes we need to push back a little bit. And if we only talk about war, then we're like, I'm going to bring out my machete and, like, cut some heads off for Jesus. Like, ah, that's a little aggressive. But maybe just push back a little bit. Know that this isn't going to be the easiest thing you ever do. Right? Maybe you're going to have to build some new habits into your life of following Jesus. And look at the end of this chapter. Verse 27, it says, They came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Elam is great. Compared to where they've been, there's plenty of water. There's shade from the trees. They're in the desert. That's a big deal. They're not thirsty anymore. They're not bitter anymore. They're a lot more comfortable than they were. Praise God for Elam. But... They didn't begin to know God as healer at Elam. You see that? They began to God, know God as healer at Mara, the place of bitterness. When he said, hey, we're going to have to deal with some stuff inside of you. Now, praise God that Elams are out there. Praise God that there's oases out there. And God knows when his people need a place like Elam where we just rest for a little bit. But my guess is, I mean, we're, we're literally one chapter into the people being free like God desires for them to be free. And he says, hey, guys, I'm super glad you're free. This is exactly why I came to rescue you. 
But there's not only external stuff we're going to have to deal with, there's some internal stuff we're going to have to deal with too if you're going to build this life in the way that I have called you to build this life. Amen? Let's pray.